Is it a good idea to uh, invite Keir Starmer to Scotland for talks? Is it a, a problem to have the word national in the Scottish National Party's title? And should uh, the SNP be talking about the inevitability of Labour winning the general election when winning in a Scottish context usually means getting the most votes or seats here? Uh, we look at the strategy to date and hear doots. Uh, we look also um, at the council situation where it seems that Edinburgh Council is about to challenge uh, the Scottish Government over its council tax freeze. Uh, we, we talk about COVID, the COVID inquiry and the WhatsApp deletions and so on. We look in a gloomy way at the likelihood that uh, Donald Trump will win the New Hampshire primary for the Republicans candidate and the equally gloomy situation in Israel and Gaza. Those are the headlines. Now for the podcast. Hi, chums, and welcome to this week's Leslie Weddick podcast from what is currently not a win spec. Not yeah, yes. As you say, I've been I've been blown you, off course. You chose this for yourself. You yes, I, I thought yeah. <laughs> Currently, a win, not a windswept wormit. It says uh, yeah. Congratulations, Mister Joyce. Let's let's pick a a tongue twister to to begin well, the you, podcast. You, come on, give everyone your Peter pickled pop. You know, oh, a pop pop a caterpillar copper plated kettle, a piece of bread and butter, Bob. A piece of bread and butter, Bob. Peter Piper picked a peck of pickled <laughs> pepper. Now, you see, these know, are... how can you do all that and just stumble? Uh, yeah, them and you see it? that that was that was utterly thoughtless. You see, I began I began to double think myself, and I heard that loop of, I'm going to say, what am I going to say? And I, 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 I blew it. Ha ha! You see, wind sweat, blew it. Yeah, We're getting yeah, back right, to it. Back on course. Right. Oh boy, what was what the heck was that like? I mean, out our back is there. Uh, our chairs were uh, uh, were strewn right over the the back garden, and it actually shifted because I've got one of these canopy things over, you know, a protective awning, if you like, over the the garden table that sits on the the, the patio out the back, and it blew it two meters. It blew it onto the. I mean, luckily it didn't cope, but it blew it two meters. It was incredible, and I did my civic duty by going out and picking up not only mine but everybody else's bits of litter that had blown out of, thankfully, mainly the uh, the paper and cardboard bins, which are the lightest ones. They're all blown over, so I went out and picked all that up. But boy, oh boy, that was some hooli. Right, and I think it was was it over a hundred miles an hour on the bridge yeah. to take. Yes, it was. Which, which is. I mean, it's an amazing thing because I live along from you in an older community uh, that's been here for, you know, hundreds of years in very hunkered down houses. And there was hardly a thing moved here. It's just really weird, you know, uh, in that I think, you know, it's it's extraordinary when you look at the way that people used to build. I mean, it's people built into the landscape and the contours. Mm-hmm with the knowledge of the prevailing winds and so on. I mean, mind you, all it takes is a slightly different wind direction. You know, it's uh, fun and games. But you're sitting in new houses, which is sitting pr- yeah. a bit proud in the, oh, the yes. fields and, there. Oh, yes, and, so. and wide open to Aye. to the prevailing wind coming right down the tay. Uh-huh. So anyway, bit rock and roll. And uh, I've been on the phone for half an hour this morning getting getting tickets refunded on ScotRail. Um, I'm very grateful to them that finally I did get through. And, and after... 30 minutes or 40 minutes hanging on, you know, these tickets were refunded. It is just this thing again where, you know, I mean, a lot of people will think that is as good as it gets. It, it just is. If we were truly digital, you just wouldn't have to be giving mm-hmm. people all the information you seem to have to give them, you know, to anyway. But anyway, moan, moan. And I, I wonder if everybody else, I don't know how I managed to get through so quickly, but, uh, you know, there's going to be a ton of people. Anyway, the long and short of it is somehow I have to try to get to Dumfries tomorrow at 3 p.m. <laughs> to do, right. you know, the, there's two screenings of the films in Dumfries, which is great. There's, uh, you know, there's one later in the evening. And actually, by then, it will be the lull after the storm so that everyone will be sort of thinking, where's Leslie? Look, it's almost sunny and everything <laughs> at three o'clock and look, nay wind, nay rain. Uh, so it's it's an odd one, actually. But anyway, if anybody seriously, if anyone's listening who is actually, you know, going down the way from the likes of Perth down to Dumfries, perchance, um, it would be great if you could get in touch, because I'm trying very hard not to drive all over the place pointlessly. Um, and yet I can't quite see what will definitely be on very possibly the buses and that'll be fine. 
So any, honestly, anybody up for it? It's hello at leslieriddick.com. Right. Okay. So that's a plea made and fingers crossed that works out. It's, again, I was starting to think of one of these links there with stormy weather or things like that and call winds off blow. But one of the, one of the things that's, that, that struck me again, and it's just becoming increasingly obvious to me over the last few weeks, I don't know how you feel about it, Leslie. There's just so much going on, so many things battering you. And I know that the, 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 you were phoned up by the BBC today to talk about the COVID inquiry. And when we were talking about the uh, uh, talking about this, I mean, I, a few weeks ago I was following the, the, the UKY1 slavishly, but there's just so much happening now. I had to admit to you that I am somewhat aware of what's been going on at the, the Scottish end of this, but there's just so much else going on. That I'm finding it difficult to concentrate and get my head around everything that's happening. Yeah, it, it definitely feels like that, because, I mean, you and I hardly really coordinate thoughts very much before the, the podcast <laughs> because it just seems kind of obvious but uh there's just just like a scattergun of stuff now and i think it's because um well let's just take the the, the covid whatsapp things yeah. I'm, I'm just gonna admit here I, i'm actually confused about this thing now and i can't seem to clarify this um with nicola sturgeon saying she didn't use informal messaging which is the way she's describing whatsapp and then saying that they had been when they had basically been downloaded onto a separate system so you could get them back anyway. So it didn't mm. matter if they were deleted. But if she wasn't using that system, then why were they anywhere? I don't understand that. Mm -hmm. um, equally, Jason Leach is kind of, you know, just stated very clearly what the Scottish government policy was on deleting yeah. informal stuff. And it seems to be there. And you could question whether that's a very clever way to do stuff. But it seems yeah. that they, they, they were kind of and whether that was avoiding freedom of information stuffy about the way they got to making mm -hmm. decisions. On the other hand, there is a story running at the moment which shows quite a bit of behind the scenes thinking by um, at least one. In fact, was now I can't even remember if it was which civil servant it was, but it was someone chatting to Hamza Youssef, obviously in his previous health minister capacity. Um, and suggesting to him that the best way to sort of avoid problems, it could have been Jason Leach, uh, when you were in the COVID period and not sure whether to wear a mask or not, was to have a glass in your hand because basically you're allowed to drink. So <clears throat> he suggested that was a thing he did a lot of the time. He had a glass in his hand because that just le left him right, basically, as far mm. as the mask wearing was concerned in 2021. Now, you'd have to sit and look at where were we with what's it, you know, with with yeah. lockdowns and rules and whatever by that stage as to whether that's shocking. Um, and I, I mean, over the piece, uh, you know, people were clearly trying to find ways to keep the show on the road. And at the same time, you know, if there is an expectation that uh, Nicola Sturgeon should be able to retrieve WhatsApp messages that whether she did or didn't use them, still puzzled. But anyway, uh, communications about how decisions were being arrived at and how people thought of their colleagues and all the kind of stuff that's, you know, made made headlines south of the border. You do sort of wonder, as many people have pointed out, why the, the same media is not interested, basically, in, you know, Boris Johnson and, and, and all of them basically saying, mm -hmm. oh, actually... Yeah, no, I don't know what happened to that. No, I don't know, really. And, you know, the, the, OK, so everyone had a bit of a parody. I can remember we did when they went on and had their um, cute, what was it, uh, Rishi Sunak had his phrase, you know, that, uh, what was it? I can't even remember what it was, but it was, you know, if that was it, I cannot recall. I cannot yes. recall. Yeah. I cannot recall over yeah. and over and over again. And, you know, so he got everyone just took the piss, basically, because that was sort of ludicrous. What is it that there is such a different approach, really, to, you know, of course, people can say it's just SNP bad and, you know, a lower state of accountability directed towards the Westminster government. But on the other hand, that aforementioned Westminster government, the Tories, are about to be toast. So it's not mm -hmm. like people are kind of reserving judgment. This is part of what makes a party toast. It's just, But it's still as if nobody really drills down further on that. Maybe it's because you actually know that you'll never get anywhere. You know that yeah. you, there's an expectation that you could you could question this. You can't recall Lark, um, and you could demand to see the central computer register of all. You know, if 
If some things can be reinstated, and I think we mentioned that too, when one of the Tory ministers miraculously managed to find WhatsApp yes. messages when he wanted to incriminate someone, having been one of the guys who'd said that basically he couldn't find them about COVID. You know, it's just, I think everyone's just given up trying to hold these guys to account, actually. Um, and I'm not trying to find, you know, too much light at the end of, you know, in the darkness with, with this, the Scottish government. But there's a sort of a sense of, still perhaps a bit of surprise that we have not our guys didn't play this completely by the book except yeah. they did <laughs> you know yeah i mean or what, what that regulation and i think shona craven was on scotland tonight last night she always makes really good contributions and uh, she made the point that uh, the information commissioner who is now looking and wondering if if there should be some sort of action taken having gone through the police wondering if there should be action and then saying against Nicola Sturgeon no um why why the information commissioner was not bothered about the protocols regarding you know yes. these whatsapp messages before the point that we've reached basically um that, that would probably relate to the previous information commissioner so it all feels like everybody's slightly rushing to cover their backsides a wee bit after the event here and the stuff that people are doing, I mean, you know, again, as Paul Kavanagh wrote about, you know, the, the, the horrifying revelation that uh, the Scottish government was still thinking about how to conduct an independence campaign um, after <clears throat> after it got into a, a period of COVID where it had, was saying publicly, we're not going to be doing anything about independence. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, yeah, there you are. Sort of there's something going on in the background, something going on in the foreground. I mean, shock horror. I, I know yeah. some. If, if you've got a, a kind of how very dare these guys ever be thinking about independence, then, yep, that is going to be grist to the mill. But really, I mean, you yeah. know, it's a well, clues in the name. What we what we actually find out from the the, the initial stage when they looked at the the, the politics of it uh, in the in the UK wide one was that uh, it was admitted that was uh, that. Uh, prior to the, the, the big lockdowns, etc., they'd actually spent far more time, the Conservative government, focusing on Brexit, which was their totemic issue, than actually considering COVID. Now, what we've got there is that, again, I'm not excusing anything, because genuinely, before I continue with that point, is what the heck is it with politicians and WhatsApp? And people who are involved in the public eye with WhatsApp. You're not a bunch of students sitting there to be able to talk flippantly. The minute you put something up on social media, it is there forever unless you delete it. And you're going to have to answer to it. I mean, that's a point I kept making to my students was the fact that if you put something up on social media, at some point, someone will go back to that. When you're looking for a job, you made a statement, you've said something, it is there forever. So be very careful what you do. And... It seems to me that, that so why WhatsApp is such a, a popular method of discussion? Because what we actually know, though, is that anything that was actually decided as policy went into emails and it was all noted and recorded. And what the, the Scottish government is facing up to is the absolute mess and disgusting statements that the UK government and discussions that took place when they were on WhatsApp. So it's as if you know they're being caught up yeah. in this general mess of the Tory mess, and now they're being held to a, a significantly higher standard, possibly, possibly because people have actually just got used to the fact that you said that the Tories are a shambles. We have very, very low expectations of them, but there are still higher expectations and higher standards to be met by the Scottish government, like Caesar's wife. So yeah. why, yeah. But but you know but still I mean I must say I have fairly fruity WhatsApp exchanges with yes. my homies you know yeah, and you kind of get to exchange but what's the point in having it if you can't sort of you know yeah. let rip at some point so I don't know if the, if if some of the stuff that's come out is the worst that it's got then I, I don't know I'm not I'm not trying to because I again you've got to look at it from the perspective of people. Yeah, I mean, if you're going to say this of the British government that, you know, basically they were fiddling while Rome burned and what by which I meant people dying. Yes. Um, 
then you've got to say that being flippant, which, uh, you know, there's, yeah. I think there's been a sort of apology from Jason Leach a bit, yes. except just, I think just saying, well, okay, that, that was a kind of flippant way to, to describe this, that he basically, it was an, an, an evening function, yeah, you know, to sit time, kind of, yeah. yeah. But, um, but still, I don't, I don't know. It doesn't seem to me that we've hit anything that despite the headlines talking about nope, fury and you. so on, I just yep. don't, don't detect the fury really. And then, you know, I know this might be swinging us off in a different direction, but, you know, when you're talking there about the, the Tories trying to, you know, kind of jump onto Brexit and, and so on at certain points, it's it's what keeps occurring to me is the amount of c- collective time that's spent on things here that's not spent on getting structures right. There's only so yep. much time in civil servants, governments, you know, to, to, to do things. And the, the 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 wee story that has been a complete shocker actually to me was one that's been in in the Herald and the National um, about a report by the Centre for Cities uh, showing that there's been the most incredible loss by people across the UK, but most in Scotland, by economic decline that basically followed Brexit. But, you know, but basically also um, because the British economy has been stuttering and has has not expanded at pre-2010 levels. So this one that just seems to be the story that's got away is that that basically the average person in Scotland has missed out on £23,000 in disposable income since 2010. Wow. I mean, why is that not important? <laughs> you know what yeah. I mean? It's, it's, it's really quite extraordinary. Uh, Dundee was 17,000 down, Edinburgh was 16,000 down, the average person. Uh, And it's, you know, you've got to sit and really try to read into how this is being calculated and what presumptions it was, you know, it was operating on. But the the guy who's um, the director of policy at the Centre for Cities that that did the report says, um, it feels as if the last 13 years have been spent arguing about things like Britain's relationship with Europe and about immigration while this has been going on. You know, this basically loss of income through economic malaise, essentially, and also a shortfall in all sorts of different ways, things that would have been expected to happen that didn't happen. So, uh, I mean, this is one I'm going to have a little bit more of a look at for the for the national column. But it really is quite extraordinary that we relate so much more more immediately to you know, if you like, we, we, we're supposed to be oriented to the bread and butter politics. And yet here we are. This It couldn't get more bread and butter than this. And fundamentally, you know, w- w- people are still more interested probably in talking about Donald Trump, which I suppose we'll have to get to. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, there, there, is a, there is a significant element to that about talking about Donald Trump, because your latest article in The National actually emphasised this whole point which was that uh, learning from Biden, because, I mean, in order to tackle Trump, I mean, I'm going to let you say what you said, but I, I thought it was incre- what was interesting about it was that you quoted Bernie Sanders saying bold redistributive policies to motivate American workers. And there seemed to be no bold uh, redistributive policies uh, motivating British workers coming from the Labour Party. And is there a gap in that electoral strategy that's been outlined by the SNP where there there ought to be bold redistributive policies in a future independent Scotland? Or if the SNP is holds the balance of power, making the Labour Party move to the left and, 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 and engaging with matters that uh, Hamza Yusuf has already talked about, wanting to meet with Keir Starmer, to talk about child poverty, to talk about all these sorts of measures that um, the SNP would wish the Labour Party to address when, as Hamza Yusuf says, Keir Starmer becomes Prime Minister. Well, there's a lot in that question, Mr Joyce. Um, But just to sort of start off on the American end of it and hope that I can remember the the rest of it, but I'm sure you'll give me a... Backer the heat of it, isn't skiffy. It? Um, yeah, skiffy, aye. Um, aye, the thing that I suppose that we sort of touched on this last time, but it's still this thing about if the left don't reach dry land with their, their proposals when they're in power, they just basically open the way up to populists like Donald Trump. Yeah. Now, that 
it's scary when you start looking actually at the change that there's been in key groups. I think we did mention this last time, but here's one particular one. A third of women approve, approve of Joe Biden in office today. It was two thirds yeah. in 2020. That's just four years ago. So and black Americans, big, big change. And that's even before the Hamas attacks, where he pretty much lost a lot of Muslim voters over the fact that America's supplying the arms. Um, now, you've got to say that, in fact, there's been some blatant deal making going on between Trump and the evangelical right. Um, and basically, very influential members of the Southern Baptist Church struck a deal with Trump in 2016 and absolutely transactional in exchange for their voting support and the whole networks of their videos, their, you know, pat all the stuff that they can basically deliver online. Trump guaranteed that he would deliver a Supreme Court to overturn Road versus Way, essentially making abortion illegal. So they did a deal in 2016. The evangelicals would support him come hell or high water. And despite the fact he's a philandering, mm -hmm. um, if he would guarantee that he would make abortion illegal, which he did so that, you know, those guys, those guys will not pull back from that. But the bigger problem is this question of not managing to get to something that basically excites. And there was one chap who'd really mentioned this about the lack of black American approval and even doing um, group polling focus groups where uh, people would basically, despite quite a number of changes Joe Biden's made, people would be saying, uh, really, we, we can't see what he's done for us. Now, that sort of rings such a strong bell, really, mm -hmm. with the Scottish situation. Um, perhaps it's also true to say that uh, the, the Democrats, you know, within the black American group, for example, uh, there was such a very high proportion of support for, for the Democrats and Biden last time round that the only way was down. Again, that rings a bit of a bell, you know, because the SNP in 2015 was sitting stratospherically high. Mm -hmm. um, but you can keep talking. I have mentioned something when I was on the Jeremy Vine program and got a, a little moment to basically do a little. This is why we're still you know, on it for independence and mentioned that uh, the, the Scottish child payment has been credited by um, as being the only thing that has seriously shifted child poverty anywhere in Europe for the last yeah. 40 years. It is that powerful a mechanism. And actually, you know, the, there's been there was quite a response to that video that the National put up online uh, because it did actually silence the normally fairly chipper Jeremy Vine and the rest of his crew. Let's just say none of whom I would suspect are big independent supporters. <laughs> right. So, you know, just having that as a fact that you can chuck out is a pretty useful one. But you can't keep rocking back on the Scottish child payment. Um, I mean, it's definitely there. It's great. It's worth us all remembering the stuff that has been done by the SNP. Um, but it needs something. It needs something basically inspiring, large and and uh, robust, a big fleshed out vision, a, a daring to, to dream big and plan it quickly. I still think, you know, that some form of district heating is the thing to go for. But um, I'm not sure that just sort of positioning gesture politics about inviting Keir Starmer up to speak. Mm -hmm. I mean, quite obviously, he's not going to come. Um, I mean, there's nothing wrong with gestures, but it's and I suppose the presumption is at least it looks like, you know, we're being uh, the SNP's being kind of, you know, we're not being mm -hmm. petty about this. Hey, you know, we're all lefties. We can sit. <laughs> uh, we can sit and have a kind of conversation about the future together. I just don't know quite where that's getting anybody. And I'm not sure either where they look. Labour's just going to win. You know, they, they just are. Mm -hmm. I mean, Keir's, Keir Starmer's. I think the trouble is that most people and voters are very uh, programmed by many years experience to have a kind of situation where people will, you know, will not acknowledge that they're going to remember. OK, now this this probably will contradict myself, but Joe Swinson was going to be the next prime minister. Oh, yes. Point. Now, of course, that was one of the things that immediately took Joe Swinson's credibility somewhere just off the pavement, really, because it was so obviously not going to happen. But nonetheless, all political discussion is conducted in the expectation that you basically think you're going to win whatever winning means. And since for a long time, winning in Scotland has meant winning the Scottish election, as in winning most seats, most votes, if you want to kind of throw that in, 
to talk about Labour winning the general election is, I by from the SNP, I think is confusing and a bit. I'm not quite sure why they're doing it. Well, my my, my thought on that was, uh, if you vote Labour up here, it's a wasted vote. Uh, if you're on the left. So the two the two prongs I would be going on about is if you support Scottish independence, which around about 50 percent of the pop, of the voting population does, and a significant number of people who continue to vote Labour despite it being an even more avowedly unionist party than it was in 2019, it is a wasted vote. It is a. But vote I'm not again. sure that's. I'm not sure, and I haven't been mm. listening forensically. I'm not sure that's what Hamza Youssef said. Right. I'm not sure yeah. I've heard him say. Uh, uh, you know, a vote for Labour is a wasted vote. No, that that was my thinking there. I, I know, don't think that's, yeah. I'm trying to talk about what the strategy mm-hmm. that Hamza Yusuf's prosecuting mm-hmm. at the moment is. And it seems to be, it seems to be quite kumbaya, means nothing wrong with that, I suppose. Um, but it's it's kind of pricing in an inevitability. He's saying, mm-hmm. let's just be honest, uh, Keir Starmer is going to win the next election. And I just think that's not well. First of all, it's not it's not an exciting. If you get a statement that's going to be covered, it's got to be more exciting than that. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. so what? And secondly, I think it is confusing because it feels like that's essentially saying they're going to win in Scotland because that's normally what you're okay. able to do when you talk about winning. So, um, and then the sort of inviting him up to talk, yeah, fine, but he's not going to do it. And then, you know. It looks a bit, yeah, and who you have invited is, you know, President Erdogan of Turkey. Mm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So over the piece, none of that's quite doing it for me, you know, and if that's if that's the sort of strategy, um, I don't know. And of course, there's been that discussion about the very name of the party, because Hamza Yusuf, yes. like Nicola before him, has kind of said he's a bit uncomfortable with the name the Scottish National Party. Yeah. I mean, yeah, that was, I mean, but that's a historical thing. I mean, because I don't know, I mean, maybe everybody who listens to this will know that the Scottish National Party came about because of a merger. Uh, there was the National Party of Scotland, which were, and I've kind of, I kind of thought when I was reading about this, it's lefties and lairds, because you had the lefties who were the, the National Party of Scotland, you know, Hugh McDermott, I thought the laugh about that, Hugh McDermott was expelled from the party because he was a communist, then expelled from the Communist Party because he supported Scottish independence, but that one there, Eric Linklater and Neil Gunn, so the lefties there. Um, but the the Scottish Party, because I mean the antecedents of that were people who let ship from the Unionist Party, which is a precursor of the Conservative Unionist Party, and they were people who believed in a kind of a home rule Scotland within the framework of the British Empire, and you would have an English, Welsh, Scottish, and uh, Northern Irish parliaments within that. British Empire framework, and they were definitely a right-wing party, a minority. I mean, there were only about a thousand of them, but the great and the good uh, who who split the Conservative Party. So I I would never describe myself as a nationalist uh, because it does have that negative set of connotations. But I do wonder about the fact how many people call it the Scottish National Party. Everybody refers it to the SNP now. Uh, a rose by any other name would smell as sweet, you know. And if you called it the Scottish Party, I'm sure that would be leapt on by people there. Are we bothering about something that, that just allows the members of the uh, the Westminster parties uh, to turn around and refer to the, the Scottish Nationalist Party on a, an ongoing basis as that kind of negative connotation of the nasty nationalists? You know, so uncomfortable. Yeah, if I was founding the party now, would I put the word national in it? No, I wouldn't. But we are where we are. And I think there are far more important things to be going on about, if, about changing the name. And I don't think it made any effective difference. And Scottish Democratic Party, Scottish Democratic and Labour Party, you know, that's the SDLP. So I, I oh yeah, I mean, it's... Yeah. Yeah, it's it's it's. I thought it was interesting. If people go back and have a wee look at the, the the history of the Scottish National Party, interesting stuff. Yeah, well, I we actually got a, an email in from Charles Muggleston, who's I mm-hmm. think also been communicating within the National or whatever on the same front, and he wants to change it to the Scotland Party. Um, I, I sort of, uh, I mean, I have I have a bit of a thing with that because. Um, to me, the Scottish National Party actually does do pretty much what it says on the tin mm-hmm. now, because being involved quite a lot of the time in trying to get the idea across that Britain is composed of four nations, it is one state, and that the nations within it took part, Scotland certainly, in a treaty, and that 
the national status of Scotland then means it's not a region, it's not a collection of people, it is a nation with everything that that really means. Now, this to me is pivotally important in freaking everything to do with our lives. You know, our culture that that uh, that arises from that national status, not just being an agglomeration of a certain number of people, but having, as Benedict Anderson would describe, an imagined community with one another, which just to deviate possibly dangerously out of this for a minute. I noticed when I went off the Celtic Connections conf- uh, event, the Red Clyde side one marking mm-hmm. 100 years of John McLean's death. Um, you know, the the beauty of that room being absolutely the big concert hall full, I think it's two and a half thousand, maybe three thousand people. Um, the minute Dick Gochen came on stage yeah. unexpectedly, the room was up in about about 30 seconds flat. Now, it was no instruction between people. It was no, if you don't know who Dick Gochen is, please Google folks. We might put something in the link. Mm-hmm. But I mean, just a kind of titan, really, in Scottish culture. And that's I, I sat there listening to that whole really vigorous kind of concert, which was actually curated by two of the younger women, one of whom was Siobhan Miller. This is great to see younger women taking on big meteor subjects like this and doing a tremendous kind of treatment of the whole thing. There was even either the great, I think the great granddaughter of John McLean was there reading some of his final letters to his wife and his uh, his his bairns. So it was a it was a tremendous event. And I sat there thinking, I don't know, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I don't get out enough. But I don't know if there's anywhere else in the United Kingdom that you could have people paying money in a completely sold out massive auditorium to be reminded of the origins of of socialism and communism in Scotland, in, mm-hmm. in part in a nation which has understands these things. And even at, there was a point where at the very beginning, the uh, actors were sort of assembling themselves on stage a bit. And uh, there was a brilliant uh, kind of house band just, you know, just playing stuff in the background. And they kind of drifted into Hamish Henderson's Freedom Come All Ye. Mm-hmm. And even sitting right at the back of the auditorium where I was, just that got picked up by people knowing it and just starting to sing it amongst themselves. I mean, it was an amazing moment. You sort of sometimes wonder. Yeah, you just sometimes wonder, don't you? But yeah. <laughs> you place yourself back in the centre of something like this and you think, we're not imagining this, we've not forgotten this, we've not overlooked ourselves, and there's a new generation taking incredibly uh, sort of imaginative ways to reconnect with really the history of of the, the greater Glasgow area, and people are responding. Now, I know it's not the whole population, it's two and a half thousand people, and, you know, it costs a couple of bob to get a ticket, the cultural stuff to me strikes me as so important. Mm-hmm. So that is what a blooming nation is. So a party that relates to the nation of Scotland will be called the Scottish National Party. Now, I also, just to be completely kind of inconsistent, I don't particularly like being called a nationalist either, mm-hmm. <laughs> although grammatically that follows. I yes. Um, although I'm not a member of the SNP, Scottish National Party, so it wouldn't make me any sort of adjective belonging to what they are because I'm not a member. Uh, But still, yeah, I can see that that inches you a little bit further towards the normal use of nationalist, which does come into the right wing category across Europe. But there's no point for all of what you said before as well. Every time you change something, you know, you rebrand and you kind of lose face. I mean, really, I think there's no point in worrying about that whatsoever and there's nothing, you know, it's essential for us to put forward what we are as a nation. And this is another thing that I would just love to see Hamza Yusuf or the, any of the rest really stand up and just not be apologetic about this. Don't run from that. You know, forget the adjective for the moment, the nationalist, but the national aspects of our politics are not regional. They're not local. They're not little makey-uppy kind of just, you know, mini-me kind of Westminster stuff. They describe a nation that is as ancient, arguably more ancient, than our neighbours that still has its institutional functioning and its kind of imagined community is going strong. 
Yeah, I mean, never, never underestimate the, the, the essential nature of culture to a national movement, you know, a national independence yep. movement. Never underestimate it. I mean, it was particularly significant with the Gaelic Athletic Association, uh, which turned many, many people uh, to thinking about that, that cultural significance of the language of the Gaelic games, etc. So never underestimate culture. And the thing about it, what, what gets me about it, I mean, I love Dick Gawkin going right back to, to his earliest days. And the, it's just the vibrance of it, the power of it, the power of music, the power of poetry, but music in particular, Leslie. I mean, and I think that, that we we underestimate its power. And I mean, that that's I think it should be at the forefront of everything that we do. And it uplifts the spirits as well. And never, as I say, it's quite right. It was two and a half thousand people there. But I, I was involved with when Dougie McLean, when he sang Caledonia, and it was just, I mean, I was just in about, about tears with, with yeah. it. And that, that, that it, it is that raising of it and that, and I've been at weddings where Caledonia has been sung and uh, where Runrig, uh, Loch Lomond has been sung. And it's just that sense of community, which is actually part of the movement as well. I mean, it isn't all about facts and figures and, you know, but I know they are significant, and it's the way the way you bring it to bear. But talking about talking about nations and nationality, and I'm not, I didn't watch, I, I did, but I'm not going to go on about it. I watched the, the beginning of the the Lord Coonsbar program on Sunday, uh, where she spoke about protecting the nation at home, and up on the screen came a shot of asylum seekers crossing the channel on a rubber boat. And I thought that's an interesting framing that the BBC seems to have brought into, is that the shores of the nation have to be protected from asylum seekers, which leads us into what we spoke about last week, which was the, uh, yes, Lee Anderson and uh, Simon Clark, etc. They were all going to rebel. They were all going to rebel. They, they had their amendments put up. And then, lo and behold, 30p Lee, went into the lobbies with the Labour Party. And because these big bad boys in the Labour Party pointed and giggled at him, Lee went, no, I'm not going to vote on principle against a bill that I think is a load of old toot and won't work and doesn't go far enough. I'm going to scuttle back to vote for the bill in the lobbies because this is the party that I belong to. This is the party that I owe everything to. And you're just saying to yourself, well, the turkeys didn't vote for Christmas, but mm-hmm. the lords, aha, a different story. Yeah, they, I mean, they, they really, these guys are so, my, my mother used to say disparagingly, all gong and no dinner. And, if, you know, <laughs> if, if it was ever invented for anybody, it's the right wing of the Tory party. You know, they, and the amount of time that they get given, you know, yep. the seriousness of all the interviews with them and, you know, pondering this sort of nano fractional torment that they're kind of wriggling their way through and then in the end of the day they just produce these ridiculous vault faces which very few presenters will actually stick straight back into their faces because you've already wasted enough time on them but anyway yeah the lords i was going to say the dear old lords but let's just abolish them um Mm -hmm. (laughs) anyway uh they have basically voted against uh the the cross-party international agreements committee motion basically is saying that you can't ratify this Rwanda treaty until uh, the government there has has made good on the promises about the immigration regime. Yeah. And so that basically means a timetable problem for Rishi Sunak to get, you know, flights off the tarmac by the spring. Um, and it it's not actually the substantial piece of legislation, the sort of, yeah. you know, we're just saying Rwanda's safe bit. That's going to come soon. But what many commentators are saying is that uh, this early kind of defeat, the size of the vote was 214 to 171, which is fairly adrift and perhaps Mm -hmm. give an indication to what will happen when the main bill comes to the Lords, which is it'll get stuck. So now there's all sorts of speculation about whether or not there'll be, you know, peers will be trying to water down the safety of Rwanda bill with all sorts of um, amendments and so on. And of course, you know, it's only feels like 10 minutes since we were going the other way that the, you know, frothing at the mouth kind of right wingers in the commons were needing everything to be toughened up. And like, look at this waste of everybody's time. And and also 
I mean, it's just it's extraordinary this de- de- degree to which we've all learned to accept this kind of utter dissonance, really. And then here, even at the core of it, we're having to sort of say, well, that's good that the lords are going to go in and clog the works up a bit and perhaps slow this thing down. But on the other hand, we should have abolished the House of Lords a long time ago, you know. And so you end up just stuck in in sort of conventional political discussion where you're having to kind of welcome an outcome from a House of Lords that is utterly corrupt in its functioning altogether. So, you know, voila, Westminster. Yeah, I mean, and it was the, the, the thing was, I think there were claims being made, I can't remember which foolish conservative minister said that, of course, the Labour Party has a majority in the House of Lords. Well, how do we look at it? There are 269 Tories, 184 crossbench, 174 Labour. You know, so there, there we go. But I will say there was one Tory rebel who actually voted uh, against the uh, with the non-binding motion. That was the Earl of Dundee. He was the only Tory rebel who rebelled against the government on Monday night's vote. So well done, the Tory Earl of Dundee, who I didn't even know existed until the moment I actually read that bit of the story. But you're you're talking about the... We but have just to... Before we go on, though, mm-hmm. I mean, t- this morning I was listening, maybe it was Good Morning Scotland, and John Bird was on, the guy who set up the big issue, except he's now Lord John Bird. All right. And Lord John Bird was talking about poverty. And the other reports coming out from Roundtree, which suggests that many, most people living in poverty would need to double their income to be yes. able to get out of it. And I, I was sort of listening to it, and I don't know if it's just me, but why, why, why? Why did you accept that gong? Mm-hmm. You know, and I'm, I'm sure he'll say, you know, it gives me a voice. It lets me be in the, you know, well, large, he was basically introduced as the man who set up the big issue. He could be ordinary John Bird, Lord John Bird. He could be, he could have changed his name by Deed Paul. He will he will have a status in a poverty argument because his contact details are sitting in people's con, you know files and because he did that thing. It's just an embarrassment, basically, to be a lord who's campaigning on poverty, even if it gives you a chance to get up and, you know, it goes into Hansard and... Perhaps you manage to encourage a few other people to be a bit awkward and it takes another month to get to a vote, which the Commons undoes the second it comes back because that's the way it swings, you know. And just the lack of productivity. I mean, geez, these guys talk about the lack of productivity in Britain. And then look Mm -hmm. at the lack of productivity there is in. I can see that there's checks and balances, but this is now just crazy. Anyway, I did interrupt. No, no, no. And did he hold your breath for that uh... Uh, if the Labour actually do win the election and if they get a second term, don't hold your breath on that uh, abolishing of the House of Lords and its creation as an elected chamber uh, representing the, the the regions and the nations of the United Kingdom. Yeah, Although, we... just to annoy you further... OK, um, go on. There is, because I'm involved with a, a group of people who are trying to use the fact of the 25 years of devolution this year to look at one of the promises for that were that was to happen with func- following from devolution, which was going to be uh, greater democracy in the form of decentralisation in Scotland. It ain't happened. Hyper no. ain't happened at all. So we've got plans for something. Trying to watch this space, which could be quite exciting. Anyway, in the course of that, um, it turns out that actually um, the our Scottish future, which I think is the thing that Gordon Brown set yeah. up, yeah. is is having an event in Edinburgh on uh, the 13th of February, which is look at exactly the same thing. A plan to reform Scotland's overly centralised system of government and hand more power back to cities, regions and communities. Okay, Mm -hmm. Uh, that's going to have Cammy Day, who's the Labour City Council leader in Edinburgh, and James Mitchell, prof of Edinburgh University. So, you know, okay, that sounds interesting. I wonder if anyone will tackle at all the massive scale of government, you know, or if we're simply talking about the regional councils we've got, essentially, mm-hmm. and the micromanagement thereof by the Scottish government and south of the border by, you know, the UK government. Meanwhile, back at the fort, Karen Adam and Kate Forbes were also doing a podcast, the name of which I've suddenly forgotten, but it's one produced by the National Newspaper. Um, and the first one was about 
local government, uh, which again, you you know, anyone listening to those podcasts will go, please, please, <laughs> please don't go through it again. So, OK, I'm just, just assuming, you know, um, but it got into none of that. It sort of chewed around that, you know, local councils are really important. Local services are really important and local people are really important. And you're just kind of going, it's almost like watching somebody kind of just dillying around on the side of the, the sea you're wondering just get in get in just do it quickly just go in there I mean there's a column written by Karen Adam today as well and it's it's fine but I mean until you're starting to face the fact we do not have local councils in Scotland they're enormous this is just not getting to the centre of the problem at all that's not decentralising things simply talking about how to fix the regional councils we've got so it feels like there's a bit of a kind of head of steam developing. And if we're just dealing with all the steam in this regard, uh, there's a story in the Herald today, which is saying mm -hmm. that um, Edinburgh council officials are discussing the idea of just ignoring the council tax freeze from the Scottish government. Um, I heard the beginnings of an interview suggesting they were going to have to knock eight million quid roughly out of education. Uh, the suggestion in this Herald piece is that actually they think they could raise more from the <clears throat> being able to raise council tax than they would have wheeled away by the Scottish government because they didn't abide by their council tax freeze. So, you know, it's it's this one is is obviously it's big and it's interesting because across the piece, uh, councils are under unbelievable strain. And if you look as well at the English situation, uh, there are six councils that have declared bankruptcy since 2021. It's not a great thing to say that in Scotland that has not happened because I'm sure a lot of councils are just teetering mm -hmm. on the brink. But um, the New Statesman today has got a thing called the Council Bankruptcy Tracker, uh, which is uh, basically a quarter of councillors think their council will be bankrupt by the end of this year in England. Um, and that grant funding from central government for councils has dropped by 40% over the last 10 years. I haven't done the figures for for the, the, that similar funding for councils in Scotland, I'm sure in real terms it's dropped as well. I don't know if it's as much as 40%, but, you know, it's a real problem here because the services are being produced by councils, which are basically being micromanaged, for for, for one thing, by central government. Um, they're, they're, the, the money has, has been drying up, as it has to many sort of frontline services, and it's not sexy enough to get a headline. Mm -hmm. You know, it's back to that other thing we discussed earlier about Scots being 30,000 quid worse off because of just a general lack of of kind of the same level of growth as you would have expected actually under the Labour government, to be fair to them, um, up until 2010. It's, it's, it's just these are huge, big, pivotal things. And yet it's very hard to get people interested in discussing it. And you can't actually knock out that as far as Edinburgh Council is concerned, and it is a Labour Council. And its leader is at this, you know, event that's the Scotland Rewired, it's called, about uh, trying to reform Scotland's overtly centralised system of government. You know, there could be a this could be part of the forthcoming, you know, general election strategy in Scotland that it's going to move into an area the SNP has not been willing to properly tackle. It doesn't look to me like they're properly tackling it either, but still, they're they're doing the business. And they're going to go in and make local government the sort of key issue for them. It's a fiefdom they used to run. So I think this needs some serious examination by the SNP, which I'm not sure it's had to date. And serious rebuttal, Leslie, because, I mean, it's the ability of the Labour Party to, 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 to take that Janus-like uh, perspective, which is, and again, it's the paradox of devolution where you have non-Labour in charge up here under the SNP, where the SNP will get the blame for the cuts that have taken place centrally, you know, through the 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 the, the Barnet formula, the cuts that are taking place uh, through the Westminster government, and I'm not obviating, I'm not letting the SNP off the hook for its lack of reform of the council tax, for its lack of local government reform, which I won't go on about either. Far too big, far too few councils, not enough representation in genuine local democracy. But it is that that edge, the sword they will use up here. Whereas when you see the Labour Party in Wales, it's all Westminster's fault. None of it's to do with the organisation and structure and governance of Wales by by Labour 
uh, with uh, Plaid Cymru assisting in order to maintain the majority. And it is, I think, that will be a tactic. And it's one that is, that I say, it's the paradox of devolution, which mm. is if you're in power, you're going to get the blame, even though you're not to blame. If you turn around and say, well, it's Westminster's fault, ah, you see, you guys always say yeah, that. Yeah, but to be fair, I mean, we did discuss this. The very day, in fact, that Kamsa Yusuf came up with a council yes. tax freeze, that should not actually be his shout. You know, there is, yep. that is, you know, that is really an interference from one tier of government in another tier of government that would not be tolerated in almost any other country. Yeah. Because their their business is entirely separate, uh, even when there is cash supplied. And of course, we've been through the thing of pointing out that in many countries, the cash isn't supplied because it comes directly to councils in the first place. Anyway, yep. we're not going there. But this will start to creep up the agenda because you'll see on the news tonight, likely, and since I, I noticed this came from a tweet from... Um, I think I want to call him Daniel Hewitt, who I think is one of the ITN reporters for the 10 o'clock news. These guys are have got a bit of a bit between their teeth when they run with it. They do very well because it was ITV, obviously, that did the whole uh, postmasters and mm-hmm. whatever scandal, the Horizon scandal. But he is pointing out that, that council leaders in England are meeting in Westminster today to warn MPs they face financial ruin without government intervention. And they're saying that demand for temporary accommodation has gone through the roof and they all face multi-million pound deficits. So, you know, I mean, that again, it'll help that it has at least one news programme is deciding. Obviously, since that's been raised, I think you can expect to see a pretty good report about that tonight. But whether or not that, you know, that will start to rattle cages, I don't know. You know, so. Yeah. And uh, yes. uh, And we've got to get back to it. Unfortunately, unfortunately, because we we talked about the uh, Iowa caucus last week and now we have the New Hampshire primary. And in the interim, uh, your man DeSantis, you know, who came second in the Iowa caucus to to your man himself, Mr. Trump, he's dropped out. And lo and behold, who was vehemently opposed to the Donald is now endorsing the Donald. And there's only Nikki Haley who now stands in the way of Donald Trump becoming crowned. I mean, fundamentally, it's the New Hampshire primary today. Quite an interesting one, though, Leslie, because I believe that around 40 percent of uh, registered people who have registered uh, as party allegiance, 40 percent are independent and they're perfectly entitled to vote in the Republican the Republican primary today. Um, and it's what you've got going on is that uh, Chris Sununu, who's the, the governor, who's a Republican, vehemently opposed to, to Donald Trump uh, within the Republican Party, as has been what they refer to in America as Haley's surrogate, you know, on the stump for, for Haley there. Uh, but again, you're looking at it, big win eight years ago. Uh, Trump, which got him in New Hampshire, which uh, sent him on the road to the dominance in the party and becoming uh, the Trump political party rather than the Republican Party. Haley's claiming she's going to absolutely remain in the Republican presidential race up until February the 24th. And they seem to be pinning a lot of their hopes, uh, according to Sununu, on Super Tuesday when they've got all these these big votes. I mean, clutching at straws, really, because when you actually scratch beneath the surface of Nikki Haley, she's not terribly uh, salubrious either. <laughs> and the woman who claims that, that there, there is no racial... That, 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 the, UK, uh, the UK, the US never was uh, racist. Far from it, because look how well she's done. And, uh, yeah... So there she is. So that's uh, that, that looks likely that uh, Nikki Haley will come second in New Hampshire and will she continue to run? And uh, Mr. Trump will continue on his way to becoming the nominee at the Republican convention. Yeah, well, sadly, there's no arguing with that. And it looks like Nikki Haley is, is apparently racing all over New Hampshire from the suburbs to the seacoast and all. Uh, you know, trying to kind of pull anybody that really objects to Donald Trump into her camp. But it's extraordinary that Trump doesn't even have to be there. And, you know, he's been in and out of court, actually, as well. (laughs) You know, it's... It's it's almost like this is like a, a so totally separate thing. There's some people that are essentially playing it by the extraordinarily strange rules of the American system, spending <clears throat> absolutely megabucks to get nowhere. In the case of DeSantis, 
Um, and yes, as you mentioned, that strange thing that essentially, you know, people who are not Republicans can essentially infiltrate the Republican process to perhaps you'd like to think get somebody who's a little bit more moderate. Although, you know, yeah, yeah, if that's yeah, if that's all you're yeah. kind of hoping for. But yes, it does look pretty much. I mean, I, I, who knows? Given that the precedent's been set there by DeSantis, you'd sort of wonder what the point is of keeping going. Actually, if Nikki Haley does lose, and that result should be in tomorrow morning, I think. Mm-hmm. In, in our time, isn't it? Um, yeah. I mean, the, the Democrats are, are because oh, Joe yes. Biden. Yeah, they've got a bit of it's a bit of a yeah. bullock, really. Yeah. Because since Biden is sort of, you know, saying I'm doing it, basically, uh, it's it's kind of not uh, it doesn't feel as, you know, it's not as vigorous a set of primaries, basically, within the Democrats. If there's anything, I think they've got one on Tuesday. Yeah, they've got one. Yeah, they've got one uh, today. But what the issue with that is that oh, there's been a a stushy between the National Democratic Party and the state of New Hampshire Democrats, where the National Democratic Party has said that its primary calendar is, is the first one's going to be South Carolina, the first official contest. However, what you are entitled to there, and this is where it gets it's arcane, you're entitled, you can go in and write in on the ballot. So uh, the Democratic Party are a bit concerned about the fact of turnout and will how many write-in votes will Biden get on a ballot that he's not standing in? And will this indicate dissatisfaction with Biden as the candidate? So yeah. there we go wasn't on that, that one. Was, this is ringing a bell now, wasn't that? Because basically uh, he lost in the, in the normal course of the sequence of these primaries, um, Iowa and New was it New Hampshire for the Democrats yeah. too were not good for him. I mean, I think he lost that and the mm-hmm. next one, so that he, he they thought very clever move. They would wait for South Carolina where he won. That was the one that really began to turn his his fortunes around last time around. So that he's kind of almost you know taken a buy on the others and waiting to kind of come in win that. So the first time you see the Biden name is him winning something. But of course, it then leaves these other states with sort of an odd situation um, and kind of I think it's also annoyed. I mean, it's strange that people get so blooming het up about whether they're the first, you know, the first to declare something or other in America. Oh, God, but, yeah, yeah. but of such thing, you know, of such small points are sometimes um, defeats constructed, you know. So, uh, yeah, it'll it's it's all feeling very wobbly. Yeah, and to to pick up on something we were talking about earlier, something we talked about last week in the podcast was the the fact that uh, they they suddenly, the UK politicians suddenly discovered that Benjamin Netanyahu wasn't in favour of a two-state solution. Lo and behold, and Shaps, when he was on Coonsburg, said, well, everybody always knew that. I think, well, wait a minute, nobody's been talking about it. And then Emily Thornberry uh, for Labour trotted out, there are other voices. And You've got to call her out on that because, I mean, Labour, I mean, and we, you and I will remember when the Labour Party in Israel was the dominant force with people like Golden Meyer. They're not even getting enough uh, support in the polls to say that we'll gain any seats in the Knesset at a forthcoming general election. Um, and it's not just Netanyahu that's anti the two-state solution. Uh, Likud has dropped support to predicted to get 18 or 19 seats. Uh, but you've you've seen also a drop in support for anti-sentiment pro-peace uh, party Yesh Atid. There has been a rise in Jewish power. That's a double that support, probably from four to nine. And then you look at the national unity. I mean, if you think UK politics is complex, mm. I took a look at this. And it's all over the place with the, with the proportional representation system that they have, which is fair enough, but it splits into Ashkenazi, Hasidic Jews, Torah Judaism. And what you can see within that framework, to cut a long story short, is there is a steady and onward drift to the right in Israel. And Netanyahu is not a lone voice who is anti a two-state solution. Anti-two-state solution, when you look at the polls and you look at the support for the different political parties, and you'll find those who are in favour of a two-state solution fall way, way down the list of the number in polls of the number of uh, folk they're going to get elected to Knesset. There will always and everywhere be within that framework of the current state of Israel. There may be people who object to Netanyahu's uh, Trump-like behaviour and attempting to uh, overturn the, 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 the rule of law and uh, the Supreme Court, and they'll come out in the streets for that. 
they will not come out in the streets for the support of a two-state solution. And in current polling, there was an open question asked last week, who is best fitted to be Prime Minister? Netanyahu still at 34%, Gantz at 28%, and the others way, way behind. So even at the height of this, when people say that Netanyahu is not doing a good job, he still gets 34% of people who say, on an open question, who'd be the best Prime Minister of Israel? And when you look at the others who are in there as well, you can clearly see there is that right-wing majority, which is anti-two-state solution, which is anti-Arab, which is pro-expansion of settlement, and as Netanyahu said, there will be Haaretz Israel from the river to the sea. Mm-hmm. It is it is incredibly emphatic. I suppose, you know, you're saying basically people being naive to think that Netanyahu, or, or in fact, you know, the base of support that shifts was really going to support anything to do with a two-state solution. But then it's only, you know, in the last little while that the, if you like, the international community has had the, the confidence or courage to basically start to, the Americans particularly, you know, that call that, that seems to have basically flushed out Netanyahu defying yeah. Biden and saying there's no space for a Palestinian state. That's two days ago. Yeah. So we've been at this now since, what, October the 7th? That's three, four months practically before yeah. anybody has really sort of said, no, this is really what we think we should be doing. I mean, the, the European Union is kind of suggesting that it can start to draw up a two-state solution without Israel at the table, is what, you know, some mm-hmm. EU people are saying. I mean, that's kind of hard to see as well. And there's many people on the, you know, Palestinian side who are kind of saying it's really hard to see how a two-state solution actually works. But then, you know, Hamas have openly rejected that. Yeah. Uh, it's such a blooming difficult situation. If, if people are not going to put massive amounts of energy into trying to find something, this ain't going to work. The only thing is, yesterday as well, I did notice that the relatives of, the, of, oh, of those yeah. hostages actually invaded the Knesset. Uh-huh. Um, and so all the while... Uh, you know, whatever anybody thinks of the political position that uh, Netanyahu has towards Gaza, Palestinians, two-state solutions or something or whatever, the thing that may do for him is is simply the lack of proper defence and security that let October the 7th happen in the eyes of many Israelis. And the what now seems to be fairly clear, that the determination to achieve what, even his own, some of his own security people are saying is an unachievable goal, which is to totally destroy Hamas, is greater than getting the hostages back. And, it, you know, it's possible that that begins to create its own dynamics because, you know, clearly you'd think a lot of people will simply want to try to, to do whatever it takes to get that settled. And that will not be possible while the continuing sort of impasse is all mm-hmm. all that happens. So I mean, yeah, it's never there's never very much of of kind of optimism that you can see in all of this. And then if you just throw in the kind of horror of the prospects of Donald yes, Trump exactly. kind of moseying into the picture, I'm sure that everybody who's involved in this uh, from a European side is is really conscious that as with the same sort of situation with Ukraine that there's a real kind of sense of urgency. We, we should talk about that actually sometime in the next podcast, yeah. perhaps, because um, I think everybody there, including uh, the president, has has begun to re sort of, you know, configure their their campaign because the mm-hmm. expectation is that um, Zelensky will simply be told to, to do a deal with Russia and yeah. just lose Crimea and the Donbass and just accept what you've got. Yeah. So, yeah, it's uh, there's nothing cheery you can say about this, folks. No, and th- I, I thought we were proceeding in such a <laughs> such an uplifting, uplifting <laughs> manner. No, until I I jumped in with that that, that two state s- solution. Uh, yeah, and we've got uh, we're sitting here saying the calm uh, before uh, we it was it Isha. We're, it's now Jocelyn is next, I believe, and we're we're awaiting sometime this afternoon. And I think we've got through the recording without being battered by the winds. Uh, and I've got I didn't go to the pictures this week. Not watching anything other than I have been watching the African Cup of Nations, which uh, the football, which was uh, if anybody saw the finish to. The, the the Cape Verde versus uh, Egypt game last night. It was 
insane and amazing and incredible. But no, no, nothing to recommend to anyone about anything at all. Uh, do you, Leslie, before we, we nip Gosh, away? You know, my mind always goes a blank at this point. But actually, because I'm just conscious of people who've got in touch with me, the other thing I feel like I have to say is, after all the ranting on about district heating, actually a, a man came up to me at the Tayport screening of the Denmark film, which again was sold out. Thank you, folks, for turning up like this. It's really brilliant. Um, but he said, I am a guy who basically spent much of my professional career trying to push district heating in the 1980s. And he sent me quite a lot of stuff that demonstrates that um, that uh, he's called Rob Moody. Uh, he, let me just get this right, is a former senior local government officer. He had produced a plan that would have pretty much been able to work on uh, in Edinburgh, which would have produced a kind of district heating system. He took this to various people. Remember, at this time, let me just think what date we're looking at here, 1982. At this time, there was no Scottish government. So he went to Cecil Parkinson. Yep, this is oh, the, yeah. the, the old hits. But he was the energy minister at the time. And the thing that stymied it, and I mean, he sent me so much information here about the plant, but it was basically using quite a lot of the the things like the old Edinburgh Royal Infirmaries relocation um, offered an opportunity to kind of have a relatively new boiler plant that could basically be using, uh, you know, powering a district heating system. In fact, that was, I think, it was his second uh, proposal. The thing that knackered it was that whilst the government can basically borrow money pretty cheaply as a government, it's about a 5% rate of interest that's charged. That was his hope that that would be the way to finance this and it would wash its face. It would more than have washed its face back in the 1980s. But Thatcher via Sir Cecil Parkinson insisted that this really had to be risk capital that would go behind this right. investment, not government capital. And they generally looked for a 15% return on investment. And all the years of his effort were basically kiboshed. And that was the end of it, probably because she was seeking to privatise the whole shebang yeah. anyway. So there we are. 19. If that had gone ahead, 1980s, if we'd actually had a decent government then or a Scottish government, that could have been us 30 years with district heating. Yeah. Oh, so thanks, gosh. Rob. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That sort of yeah. says it like it is. Yeah. And as we wind our way out of this week's Leslie Rowe podcast, I'd just like to say those of you who had a reform of local government and district heating on your bingo cards, feel, <laughs> feel, feel, feel free to shout, Boos! And on that, <laughs> we'll see you next week, Jobs.